Deezer Originals Trailblazers Arthur Baker Hello, my name is Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most luminescent luminaries. Now, in these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season. And this episode is a discussion with Arthur Baker. Now, this was recorded in May 2019, so it was just the start of the summer season in Ibiza. And in anticipation of that, Nick was already off down to the White Isle to DJ, so alas, unavailable for this recording. But we did have a touching moment planning a suitable stand-in for Nick. You know when you and a friend have exactly the same idea at exactly the same time. Me and Nick chatting on email, and we emailed each other at the same time. How about Dom from the Stanton Warriors? Our emails crossed to much mutual hilarity. And Nick called Dom to book him in. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy. Trailblazers. Today, we meet a true blazer of trails. If hip hop can be traced back to DJ Cool Herc, then electro must surely be traced back to this man DJ, producer, musician, composer, nightclub impresario, even restaurateur and pub chain mogul. He's the missing link between Craftwork, Africa, Bambata, New Order and Solwax. Arthur Baker, welcome to Trailblazer. Thanks, Eddie. That's a, such a great intro. <laughs> that's your, that's your <laughs> intro. <laughs> can, we, can we put that on a T-shirt? Well, I was thinking more your headstone. Well, <laughs> thank you. Arthur, it's lovely to see you. It's been far too it's long. It's been and, way too long. And, and how lovely to, uh, to now be able to go through your life, you know, because we've oh. never really, we've, all, we've, we've been ships in the night, like passing in the night. For, for, for so many long, years, yeah. and, but we've never Since actually XFM, got down. Yeah, yeah, never really got down and properly talked to you for an extended period of time. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to be here. I think we first met in 2001 when we started making like electro sampling old electro records. Of course, I was about Wise career started like that. I mean, and you actually uh, you hit us up and invite. I mean, remember this? You invite us over to your place. We lived in Candom. You had an apartment yeah, there? Yeah, right on the water. I remember yeah. being like slightly worried that... Grand Union. Yeah, Grand that was it. <laughs> you were worried that you were going to get handed a cease and desist, yeah, basically. I just make these like, electro riffs off like scratch records. We didn't actually know where they came from. And um, there was some Houdini riff and a Man Parish riff. But yeah, we thought, oh no, what if it's... I don't think you ever made it to my records. No, <laughs> not yet. Well, actually, but, yeah, no. Oh, maybe you did. And I don't know. Yeah, he's just got away with it, yeah. Arthur. <laughs> Moving on. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's traditional for Nick to ask the first. Question. So, uh, so I'm going to hand that uh, that honour over to you. Okay, Doc. I'm going to ask a bit of a cliche interview question, but I'm fascinated by uh, what age did you think to yourself I want to get into music, and when did you actually get into music? I'd say I started really wanting to m- make my own music or be involved in music when I was about 15. I'd say 14, 15, and a friend of mine's parents owned a record shop. So I ended up working in a record shop for Christmas when it got really bu- It was never busy except for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And instead of getting paid, I got promos. So I got like Al Green promo, a few other things that I still have to this day. And at that point, I was really into into black music. I mean, I liked rock, but I never thought I'm going to make a rock record. But I always thought I want to make, dan- uh, well, disco records. So it was really that early, I'd say 72 or 73 when I started really... Making records and DJing too. I mean, I started DJing in college in '73. So. I think that working in a record shop is a perfect kind of intro and uh, gives you come some kind of like a 
good start in making music. Same for me. I was actually had a job in record shop about 16 and then I just listened to the tunes. You've, uh, yeah, it's the greatest start for DJ and it being a producer. You get mm. all the tunes first and, uh, and get them to take them home with you, which are quite expensive at the time, right? When you were young. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, no, it was it, so many of the people I've worked with over the years have been people who started in record yeah. shops. So it, it, it makes sense because. You do get to talk about music all day, listen to music all day, exactly. and you meet people, you know. And that, so kids, if you want to start out, work in a record shop. You've got to find a record Where shop they, first yeah. and yeah. then work at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's, um, well, we've, we've slightly jumped the gun, but, uh, but um, it'll just save us time. Let's, let's, Arthur, let's rewind this um, from way before the record. Let's, 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 let's take it from the edge. Right. And so where did it all start? Like, where were you born? I, I always had you down as a bronze. Bronx guy, no. But you're from you're not from the I'm Bronx, from, are you? Another B, Boston. I'm from Boston. Ah, so you're a Boston. Just guy. down the road, you know, couple yeah. of, couple hours ride, not not too far. But we're very competitive, Boston and New York in sports. It's like Manchester and Liverpool or something. It's like literally the closest cities. So you really uh, you hate you know you really hate New York teams. But when I, when I moved to New York. Finally, I never changed over. It's like you never would change your team here, and you would never change there. So I was always a Boston fan living in New York. And you're and, a Red Sox fan and a, and yeah, a, and and a Celtics, is it? No, Celtics. Celtics. And, and the pa- New England Patriots. Which, oh, Patriots. Know. Okay. So, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So I'm from Boston. Okay. And I moved to New York in 80. I lived there for like 12 years. So okay. Okay. My career obviously took off in New York. And to what extent was your childhood musical? Were your parents musical, either of them? Well, my mother, my mother sang a lot. She loved singing and she'd be in like, I'm Jewish and she'd be in temple and be in the, in the, in the choir temple and did stuff like that. Her, her first cousin was a guy by the name of Sid Raymond, who was the, uh, the arranger for West Side Story. He wrote the Girl Watch the theme song. He wrote wrote um, the Patty Duke song. And, you know, he was like huge. I mean, he, he he's won an Oscar, Grammy, and a Tony. So it's obviously my mother's side of the family. I, he did really, I mean, he's a super famous guy. He did all Leonard Bernstein's arrangements for, yeah. for everything. So, yeah, it was, that was always the side of the, my, my dad's side, no, no, no. He couldn't carry a. A tune in the paper bag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Same uh, as me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it really came from that, and we always had music in the in the house, and you know musicals and stuff like that, and you know Frank Sinatra, and you know the, this was the sixties, and uh, and then when the Beatles, you know, like anyone my age, when the Beatles hit, you know, that changed the, our world, everyone's world. But. Yeah. But before then, w- w- was there a tune that you can identify as like one of the first tunes that kind of had an emotional effect on you? Yeah, for sure. There, there, there's a song called, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a Jew a song from in a temple during Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And there's a song called Alvenu Malkenu. And it's a psalm, most beautiful song. And literally, I remember being in temple and being like, wow, this is just insane. And then <laughs> like 40 years later, I taught the song to Mogwai. And they, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I heard when I, when I, when I met, Brilliant. no, well, listen, when I met Mogwai, I said, <laughs> they should do this song. And I did a demo. I played a little bass and I came up with an, an arrangement, sent it to Stuart and he loved it. I went up to I went up to uh, to Scotland, and we did it, and we did a version of it. And they ended up 
playing that as their encore for literally 10 years. It was their yeah. encore song, 20-minute versions of it. And they called it My Father, My King, but it it, it actually ended up coming out. And it, I'm sure you can play it now if you want. Yeah, we will do. But it's a very interesting record because people don't associate me with Mogwai, but, you know, that, that sort of— that song always stuck with me, and when I met them, and I just thought, oh, them playing it will be, like, you know, unbelievable. And it, and it, and it is. It's great, great record. Trailblazers. Arthur Baker. You work with Mogwai. I mean, I'm pleasantly and beautifully surprised. Like, what was the context that you met them at? I met them at a gig, and I loved their music, and I just sort of tracked them down. And me and, me and Stuart got on super well. We're still friends to yeah. this day. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't. it was more, you know, it wasn't really to work together. I just loved their music. I didn't think I could really add much to what they did, but... When after really getting to know the band, and I just thought, oh, you know, I just had like a whim that they would they would sound great playing that song, and yeah. I, I was a hundred percent correct. And if you if you and I have quite a few live recordings of it because I'd go to the gigs and hold my video camera and 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 record it, and it was it was amazing. They played they they ended their set at, at Glastonbury when they headlined the second stage one year and 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 they had all the disco balls and stuff yes and they and they played that was the the, the closing and they played for like 20 minutes on really great yeah incredible I, yeah. I got to see them last year i think for the second yeah. time and and i had i had a choice between the killers on the main stage and them in a in a, in a little smaller tent and uh, i saw yeah, the them first in a half tent the them in a tent yeah just it was ridiculous yeah, i mean it was so it was i found the killers very emotionless and yeah. very cold and sort well, of that's, clinical. That's and, the and, opposite of Mogwai. Yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. I was just unbelievable. Yeah, I was yeah. just, it was such an emotional experience. I, I, and, and I'm sure that you were emotionally affected when you oh, saw it. Oh, for that. sure, yeah. When they played that song, for sure, yeah. So, well, well speaking of being affected emotionally, so um, when you were, I guess, coming into your, uh, your, going out of your childhood and into your adolescence, and you were discovering music, like in a serious way, was there a, a tune or an artist that, I mean, you mentioned the Beatles blowing your mind. Were, were they the ones that kind of uh, made you think, God, I, I want to do this? Was there, a, was there a moment where you thought, I want to be a musician or I want to be a producer, well, I want to make music? <clears throat> there were a few, but the one that I remember most clearly is I was driving to school, so I had to be like 17, and I, uh, this track came on the radio and it just, was, it just blew my mind and it had this long intro and, you know, I was late for school, but <laughs> I just sort of ran, kept my car going and, and, and listened to, to it till the end. And it was a, a song called Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations. So, uh-huh. And it was uh, Norman Whitfield produced it and arranged it. And, and, and he was sort of my main sort of uh, person as, as a producer. Like, he wrote the songs, he arranged the songs, and, uh, and you know, it that song to me still stands up to this day. Amazing arrangement. Yeah, it's so tight, and it's almost that's a, that's a great bit of producing because it's like it's how much you leave out 
um, almost more than how much you put in. Less is more. Yeah, 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 isn't it? Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. the Boston scene like there, like club-wise? Did you, as a teenager, did you sort of go to clubs? I guess the 21 thing in America make it hard to sort of... You know, like disco DJs back then you'd follow? Or well, it was just starting then. Like, like I, I, I graduated high school in, in 73. So basically, from like 71 to 73... There were clubs, but obviously you couldn't get yeah. into them legally. There were, there were, you know, there were some. I had two really good f- female friends who looked older, and they'd get into the clubs and they'd sort of sneak us in. There were yeah. f- there are a few gay bars that you could sneak into and stuff. And and uh, but you know, I'd say seventy three, I started DJing. Like I went to college, and went, before I went to college, I. I got two turntables and a mixer, GLI mixer, and one of the, you know, I went to Brooklyn to go get it. And, and this is that time when the decks, did they have pitch controls, the early kind of pre-technics, you just <laughs> slam the next track on kind of thing. <laughs> go go for the what, what's a pitch control? No. <laughs> next. <laughs> no, that was before that. There were no yeah. pitch controls. But but literally, I did r- right out of high school when I went to college, and then I flagged my way a gig at a club. Yeah. Literally called Rashid's, like a Egyptian discotheque. Wow. You know, but literally, I got a job because I had the records. Because I'd go to New York and blag the records. So what this was seventy three, seventy four. I'd go to record stores and yeah. uh, record labels and blag. Playing what kind of songs at that club? Okay, uh, "Love to Love You, Baby." Obviously, that that had just come out. Um, the Tavares, uh, just in in like I love music. You know the OJ kind of sound as well. Philly was huge. It was Philly, and it was Euro Euro right. disco. So it was disco. It was like from seventy three to seventy six is when that was the heyday of disco, right? So literally up to the B, the the, uh, the Bee Gees, but literally it was a lot. I play a lot, of, and I play some Latin because there were a lot of Latin. There was I played salsa too, so yeah. I was actually going to New York to find your records and scamming free records from them. And and would you say at that time being a DJ is not there wasn't really sort of DJ careers as such, or DJs didn't really travel? Did you think when you're DJing these clubs, this is something I want to do, get become bigger DJ, or was your mind more on? I no, like I wanted. Like was no, even then, I wanted to make my own records. Yeah. It was always like I'm going to do this to get in with record labels, and you know, I wasn't. I was never a show offy DJ. Like right. I, I, I didn't really have that. In that wasn't in my personality to you be stand on the decks and put your arms out. Yeah, no. <laughs> I read somewhere. I don't know whether this is true, but I read somewhere that you. It's all you true. Didn't, you didn't. You didn't have a very good uh, like when when a record didn't go down yeah. well. You didn't have a very good. Uh, that was at Rashid's. You, you... I would throw the record on the dance floor. <laughs> I would smash it and throw it out. Did you ever, like... ever hit anyone on the dance floor with a flying record? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I I didn't really want to be a record. Pro- I, I wanted to be a record producer. I didn't want to be a DJ, so it just was a means to an end. And luckily, because I wasn't a really good DJ, so it was more like it was, you know, meeting people and and you know making sure. Like at a party, I like DJing just because I knew the music would be pretty good. But yeah. to actually do it as a career, I didn't really ever think of that. And, and 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 then again, back then it wasn't a great career because literally. For the, either your mobile DJ, which you know you had to have the the equipment and all that, that was okay. But then, 
to also be the DJ that you needed a residency because no one traveled. And presumably that you was like play, play all night and start. Play all night for a hundred dollars wow. if yeah. you're lucky. You know? Yeah, exactly. Larry Levan, you know, they even Larry and people like that, they didn't get paid well. And yeah. and and they wouldn't they wouldn't travel, they wouldn't tour. They would they were afraid if they left, they would their job wouldn't be there when they got back. I mean <laughs> I mean, you know, Junior Vasquez would never leave. He never yeah. would leave because he was afraid if he if someone else played there, they'd get his job. So it was like literally like that. And I think that all changed when Chicago, the house music started hitting. And all those guys from Chicago came over to the UK because they had hit records. And then that sort of is what brought people touring. I think yeah. before that, none of those guys when in you New York came over here. You know, of these like Frankie Knuckles, etc., coming to England for the first time, not realize how much their music resonated in sort of Europe and into these big raves and stuff. Um, a lot of them hadn't really played much outside of, I guess, the time Chicago or New York and must have blown their minds. Yeah. Yep. So, Arthur, um, can you pinpoint a, a record that, w- that would uh, uh, like embody that kind of time for you you know when when you were a dj not wanting to be a dj was there a record that really inspired you god i would say probably something like um you know maybe harold melvin in the blue notes don't leave me this way one of those kind of philly tracks that was extended great you know great disco record that you know to this day you play that now and it just it can it's it's one of those records I, i'd say from that era that that's one of them i mean there's there's tons of them but you know i've just sort of recently been listening to that one and you know that, that that's a great record there were tons i mean anything the tramps did the tramps even though they were you know they were thought of as commercial but when that stuff came out it it was just sort of so joyous and such a celebration of disco before it got overblown but you know people into the music weren't, they didn't see it as being something uncool. We thought what we were doing was super cool. And then, you know, Disco Duck obviously was super not cool. But, you know, but the music, <laughs> uh, you know, just to to look at it now, it's all that music now, the the great disco stuff Still is getting played. Great. It's getting sampled. It's, you know, it, it's, it's so influential again. Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. Don't leave me this way. When you went to the uh, record labels and used your like DJ position to get free vinyl and put up your collection stuff, I always picture like in uh, what's that TV series vinyl back in the sort of seventies record label sort of offices are kind of crazy places. The disco thing was going off before it kind of got like sort of taken down by a whole maybe the cheesy thing. Was it like crazy heady days in those offices? Was everyone like doing lots, coke? And, lots like, of crazy? drugs, right. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit like vinyl. It now, was it? just like vinyl. People go, oh, that's not true. It's true. I thought vinyl right. was. I loved vinyl. I thought it's kind of on the money. Had, then they should have had a second series because I think it. You know. It, you know, it's not a documentary, but yeah. that stuff was happening. We had fun. I mean, so. Casablanca was so over the top. They snorted up literally Donna <laughs> Summer, Kiss. They snorted all the profit. Yeah. Neil Bogart, come on. But they threw the, they would throw the best parties. Like, yeah. it was just... You could, you know, I mean, it was amazing. And did everyone in that kind of era, early era, they sort of would hang out together with your sort of Jelly Beans, Lila Vans and all that stuff? Would they kind of... Well, you know, at at those, at those conferences you would, you know, but, you know, that was even pre... 
that was sort of still pre those people becoming names and stuff. Names, yeah. really. It was like just a little bit after that. Right. But, you know, but um, yeah, the, I think that started like late, very late 70s, early 80s when a lot of the DJs sort of became more well known. I mean, there was a whole culture and heritage in the mid 70s of all these big name DJs, but, you know, they were big named just to a specific audience, you know. Would there be any sort of DJ who might have sort of inadvertently inspired Larry LeVan? Larry LeVan's quite hard was kind of be quite right the first DJ DJ playing all different sounds and, you know, the clash of disco to kind of uh, early electronic stuff. But did he sort of feed off the back of someone else like mid sort of 70s? Was there anyone sort of pre well, Ron, Ron, Ron Hardy in Chicago, he right. was really good. He, he he was like, he's thought of as the Jimi Hendrix of, of DJs. You right. know, he was... Um, and, you know, T. Scott, who I worked with, he was someone who died way too young, and he was an amazing DJ. Yeah. Walter Gibbons, I mean, you know, those guys, those guys yeah. were amazing. Deed, Shep Pettibone, they were all, you know, they, they, I mean, Larry, Larry, what made Larry really different was he would not give up on a record. Like, if he liked a record, he'd play it. If it cleared the floor, he'd play it four times in a night. <laughs> Yeah. He would just play it again and again and again, and it was just like he would sell the Stubborn record DJ. You know? <laughs> until it sunk. Yeah, people. It was massive. Yeah, that no, level no. of rotation. He it was, was just getting you know, people scared. He, that, yeah. That's one of his real was one of his real talents. He wouldn't give up on on a record, and you know he was he's ballsy basically. Like, yeah, I mean he's <laughs> he's become you know obviously he's become such a sort of a legendary yeah. person, and you know he had you know. He he had his obviously bad and good sides musically and, and, yeah. and but but you know as far as like a DJ who would break a record, not smash a record, but actually yeah. break a record. It strikes me as back then people like Lau Levan and Jelly Bean they played more compared to today's sort of sound, more sort of eclectic kind of open format thing, which I think makes a DJ set more exciting. You never know what's coming next. Whereas maybe today and more DJs sort of stay in their lane and play that sort of subgenre of tech house or whatever. Yeah. Well, when that, I listen to these old tapes, these kind of guys, I'm like anything goes. Like, creates an excitement which has possibly been lost in, in modern day well, you, well it is about? yeah it is lost you yeah. know I, you know I, I think you know like when, when I you know I've known like Paul Oakenfall mm. since he was playing at Heaven and he used to play everything and then when he became really big and he had Perfecto and all that he would just stick to that lane yeah. and I was like dude you should play, play like what you used to play because yeah. literally you could really affect people's minds you could expand people's kids minds and you know yeah. really expose them to different stuff but people get really stuck in a lane and they're and they're afraid really they're afraid they, they don't want to take a risk they go where the money is don't they, <laughs> they go where the money is so yeah, speaking exactly. of that yeah. speaking okay. of that arthur where's, where's the money yeah where, well, so <laughs> what how did you money? get a job how did you what was your first job in the music industry then because you didn't want to be a dj you wanted to break into the music industry by being a dj so was it um did you get a job was it a tommy boy was that your first one no i never really had i've never had a job in my life actually ah. I, no i've never <laughs> Well, so how did you, what was your entry point then? How did, when did you first start getting, like, how did you get your first gig as a producer then? I, I took my bar mitzvah money and made a record. Ah. Literally. No, you have to. Back then, you, no one's going to hire some kid mm. to make a record. I just had money. Well, the first thing, okay, the first thing was I took an engineering course in Boston and I convinced the owner, this was in like 75, that he should, he should invest in me. And, in, and invest in disco because it was this is when disco was at the height seven, yeah. maybe 76 and I convinced him to not only give me the studio for free but to put up money to hire an arranger a band just 
do it all. And, wow. and uh, this guy's name was Dan Cole and I convinced him and, and I've, we got an arranger and we did a track. It sounded a bit like Savannah band vibe, you know, but, the, but actually, okay. He paid for some of it, but the, the, the two singers, the group was named the new hearts of stone and they were both pimps from Rhode Island. <laughs> For real. Yeah. Who I, I don't even know how I met them, but I think I was doing a mobile DJing gig in Rhode Island, which was near Boston. They came up and I said, well, listen, I'll produce a record. I never produced a record. I know what to do, but you have to pay, you know, so they, they paid for the recording. He paid for that. I didn't have to pay anything on that one. And we did a record called Losing You, which actually came out on a label in Canada called Disco One. And, you know, Few people played it, got listed in, in, in Billboard on the on the on the disco chart. So literally that gave me the like, oh, I can do this. I can do it. So then I took my bar mitzvah money and decided I'm gonna make not not do one song, I'm gonna do an album. And literally, obviously I ran out of money halfway through. But <laughs> a guy by the name of a guy by the name of Jerry Moulton came by and said, Oh, I'd like that. Uh, my my brother's starting a label and maybe he'll wanna use some of these songs and his brother was Tom Moulton. So basically Tom and Jerry bought the songs and there, there were like 10 songs and they bought them and they, this, this is also the first time I got screwed in the music. I never had a job, but it, I can tell you the first time I got screwed in the music industry. Basically they had told me, well, we're going to uh, re-record your songs but we're going to, we want the tapes, the multi-track so we can listen to them so we can know what you did. So literally they just took the tapes. I got, a, we got, I got the money I that I, I had put in 10 grand. I got 10 grand back, Yeah, but obviously no points because they were going to re-record and do everything. So basically they didn't, they just mixed it. They added like a change one vocalist, but kept pretty much everything. And it came out as an album called TJM which was a big, it was Tom's one artist album. And there were a few songs on it that were really big. And like Larry played, I Don't Need No Music. It was big at Paradise Garage. Yeah. So although I got screwed, it gave me more of an entree because, you know, I did something with Tom Moulton and Larry LeVan's playing it. So then from there, I just start, kept making these sort of disco records. One was called uh, Happy Days, but the flip was called T's Happy. And that was T. Scott did the mix on it. That was a huge record. That's still, you know... I love that chain. Yeah. To this day, that gets played a lot. And it's we finished that in 79. Had a record on West End Records. So we were making... I was making, like, disco records. And then, to get back to your first point, I got hooked up with Tom. I had met Tom at like the disco, Tom Silverman at the disco convention in New York. And then he saw that I was actually making records. So I was like really the only record producer he knew. So when he started Tommy Boy, I'm starting a label. I, you know, do you want to produce a record for me? I go, sure. You know, let's do it. And then he introduced me to Bambada and Bambada had all these different rap groups. And one was Soul Sonic, one was Jazzy Five, Cosmic Five. So we went in with Jazzy Five first, and, and that was still with live musicians, and I had to put, get musicians to play. And we did a record, and it was called uh, Jazzy Sensation, and that record ended up selling like 50,000 in New York. It sold a lot, like right away. So then Tom said, well, you know, Bambada got this other group, Soul Sonic. You want to go in with them? And that's how Planet Rock happened. Right. But, but literally... I never had a job and I never got paid a, a check, a salary in the music industry. Never. Um, 
And how I did it was literally just doing it, you know, and I think that's sort of important. Nowadays, it's so much easier to just do it because everyone has a studio in their computer. So yeah. I, I think, you know, that's the difference. Back then, I had to put real cash and I had to convince people to give me studio time or whatever. So, it, you know, it's a, it was, it was, it wasn't easy for sure, but it was, it, it was right at before the machines came in. So you still needed all musicians. So yeah. to cut a record, you had, you know, rhythm section, five people, strings, horns, you know, it's like the, you're the talking. The tape was expensive then as Tape, well. studio costs. So to make a record, it would be like back then, like five grand. To you talking know? of yeah. early machines, because, uh, I mean, on, let's say, Planet Rock, uh, it's one of the first tracks of that tempo in with these 808. Yeah. Is that something you, uh, did, was that an accidental thing, or did you always know that 808 had that sound, or were you trying to replicate the craft thing? How did the whole using the 808 drum machine come around at that early time? I think it only been out like a yeah. Year I or mean, two. I mean, basically, we knew we, we the, the record I did before with Bam's first group was still organic, and oh. then... What we decided we were going to do something like a craftwork type of vibe. We yeah. looked for a drum machine, and you know, basically, we we found an ad in, in the Village Voice, man with machine with drum machine. Right. So we called the guy up, and he, I said, "What kind of machine do you have?" He said, "808." So then, did, did you know what 808 was then? No, wow. but then, but <laughs> but now, it, my memory has sort of triggered off that I think I went to Sam Ash and checked it out before the session. Right. That could be true. It might not be, but it sounds like something I would have done. But then when we got it, when it, when it showed up, it just sounded so modern and so... And the guy, presumably, who you sort of brought with it and you had to program it and kind of he was... Yeah, well, he showed me how to program right. it. I mean, he, you know, I mean, we programmed it together, but, you know, certain things, he showed me how you trigger the... The instruments, and I, I remember playing the cowbell part. Well, you know, yeah. sort of like, it's the first time you've used it and come across it. Were you kind of a bit blown away when you're sort of hitting these buttons and kind of big speakers? Well, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I know I was blown away when we recorded the track, yeah. and it sounded, I thought it sounded like, you know, game-changing even back then. But Absolutely. And, yeah. how did, and how did Kraftwerk come into that picture then? Well, how do they come in a- after the fact? Or well, I mean, w- what, how do we deal with them? How do, well, how, you, well, all of those questions. I okay. mean, so, so what, First was, what question. was the moment of inspiration? Was it you going? I mean, like you, presumably you'd heard this Kraftwerk record and you wanted to bring this in. Oh no, I never did. So, <laughs> so how did how did it come in then? No, okay, no, I had of course, but but what happened was, again, this is like we're talking nineteen eighty. 82. And it's so, two Crawford records, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, see, that's, okay. So basically, <laughs> Bambada, there was a demo, which I I don't remember what it sounded like, but about three years ago, I got a copy of it. So I now actually, I'm so, sort of, um, I'm backed up by the fact that it's a sh- it's shitty, you know? All these years, Tom said, oh, yeah, we did a demo, and, you know, you just copied the demo. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't remember it that way. Then we found the demo. I definitely didn't copy the demo at all. So, yeah. But what happened was the melody from Trans Europe Express... A lot of a lot of guys break dancing and in the parks and stuff were playing Trans Europe Express, and... Oh, I lied before. I had one job in the record business. <laughs> I was working at a, at a, at a, dist- a one-stop distributor uh-huh. in Long Island City. That was after I moved to New York, had made records, couldn't make any money making records. I got this gig. I worked there for like six months. So that I will, will you know, I want to just verify that yeah. I've had one gig. And literally outside there, we'd go and sit and 
smoke a joint in at lunchtime, and there'd be these kids sort of breakdancing with a boombox Trans Europe Express, which was amazing, so eerie, you know, to see it in the, you know, the projects and, you know, because, but so that was sort of, we were going to do that. And then I went to a record shop in, in Brooklyn uh, called Record Factory, where the guys who became um, Rockers Revenge, another group that, you know, obviously mm. I worked with, they they had just got the new Kraftwerk record and they put numbers on. And I was like, oh man, that's, that, the beat is just, you know, mm. I just said, that's the, that's the beat. We got to use that beat. So then we tried to make, you know, Trans Europe Express and numbers work together. So, and which obviously it did. Did you, re- <laughs> did you replay that sort of? We replayed somewhere? everything. There's no yeah. samples in that at all. There were no sam. I mean, the only sample on there is the orchestra hit, you yeah. know, and that was in a fair light and you couldn't really sample. It was, you know, so but literally even, there's all, everything on that record's played by hand except for the 808s program, but everything else is played. But so, leaving, the, sorry, leaving the studio that day and sometimes you might make a track you're not too sure about it. Like you've heard it all day in your ears and next day you think, okay, it's good or not. But that particular tune is so fresh and amazing. How was your feeling when you like left the studio or you went home, you listened back to whatever from doing Planet Rock? Was that kind of a... Yeah, well, well, when I took, when we took it home, we, the first day we, we cut all the music and the rappers were there and they tried to do their rap and they couldn't figure out how to rap over that beat because it was a lot either up-tempo or down-tempo because it, you could rap ha- half-time, but it was like 128 or... 69 or mm-hmm. whatever, 64 yeah. and a half. So <clears throat> literally they had issues. So Globe had to go, the, the main writer, MC Globe, had to go back and sort of rethink the whole thing out. So we're there, I'm there with Roby and John Roby, you played this stuff and we're listening to it and we're like, we, we, you know, we got to really finish the track that night. Well, obviously we had no money, you know, we had a budget also, which made things a little tighter. And, you know, <clears throat> when I took it home, I was like, man, we, I, I told my wife, we've, we've changed musical history right now. I knew wow. it. And that was without the rap. That was just the music. I just felt like there was something so unique and. You know, I thought the only thing I could reference, I was like, sort of like talking heads, a vibe like what they were trying to go for, but we've actually done it, you know, sort of merging sort of European with African with, you know, whatever, whatever the combo is. But I felt even before the rap, I felt that, you know, something special. we had done something special. Yeah. Yeah. Those black kids in the projects, in and around the projects that were breakdancing to Trans Europe Express, who was turning <laughs> them on to, to craft work? Probably... Probably Bambata, you know, Bambata was playing at, at gigs, you know, I think, I don't really, <clears throat> I don't think it would be, I don't know if it would have been on the radio. I think it was literally, it could have been on the radio, the BLS might have played Trans Europe Express, but it was an older record. It was a few years earlier when yeah. it came out. But I, people like, guys like Bambata and, 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 and I'm not sure if Herc played it, but Grandmaster Flash a lot of the street DJs were, were they'd play anything that had a beat, good beat. So yeah. I would I would guess that either Bambada or someone of his ilk would have been playing that out at a party and they'd track it down. But you know, who knows for sure. Yeah. Did you get a chance to check out some like legendary early block parties of like when they'd like wire up from the local 
a lamppost and sort of do their thing. <laughs> well, know, yeah, the, all the Bronx River Community Center parties, which were, which were BAM's parties. Yeah. And, what, what were they like? <clears throat> they were like a in a community center, you know, yeah. like a, a rec room or whatever you'd call it, a YMCA room. Milk but, crates and kind of all the Yeah, yeah. The and, and, you know, no white people at all. Literally, me and Tom would go and we'd be <laughs> the only white people in sight at though, because it was all kids. Yeah. It was all black and Puerto Rican kids. And people would be like great dancing and body popping and the whole yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like you see in Beat Street, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. Sonic. So you had your first hit then. I did. You, did your life noticeably change then, or, or did it take a few years for that record to be fully appreciated? Oh, come on, immediately changed. Because think about it. I was working in a warehouse, sweeping the floors and sort of picking records off shelves and stuff. And people would say, "Well, why are you working here? You have a record." Like I had records that were out, and they'd see my name on them, and they go, well, "What are you doing here? Why are you working?" I go, "Because you don't make any money. You sell fifty thousand records. You're not going to really make much money, you know." So, yeah, so once Planet Rock hit, I mean, within a year, I owned my own recording studio in Manhattan. You know, I had a studio and things happened. So it was such a big record, you know. So, yeah. And then I had Walking on Sunshine, which did really well. So I had those two records basically at the same time. And those were the two biggest records in New York and in, and you know over here they were both very big in, in in the UK, so yeah it really it totally changed everything for me you know at that time and time wise that was eighty two eighty two eighty two to eighty three and right. then you know then I did I O U by Freeze so that so yes that I was, was even say. a big that was even a bigger record like worldwide sales so you, you were know? dominating radio airwaves. Uh, Definitely from 80 to 80, 34, yeah. all those tunes kind of came out in quite close sort of... Yeah, confu- yeah. confusion with New Order and stuff. Well, yeah. okay, no, so here you go, rewind, rewind. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're in your... So you, you've got yourself a studio with, with your first couple of hits and then freeze, A-E-I-O-U. That yeah. happens. Yeah. And, you know, your, your, your trajectory is, is stratospheric by, by yeah. this time. So then I presume that uh, Bernard and those guys over in Manchester just... You know, heard this these yeah. beats and thought, yeah. "Whoa, we've got to get involved." Well, with they, this guy. they 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 got they they heard them through a, a friend of ours in common, a guy who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, Michael Schamberg, and he he was running Factory New York. They had like a an outlet of their right. label, <clears throat> so he he said, you know, he told them that they should work with me, and and uh, so we <clears throat> they sent me all. See, I didn't really know much about. Joy Division at the time when when we were first, I didn't really know. Other than people would say, "You're working with those guys. They're so like they're really depressed. They're really moody guys. <laughs> how are you going to deal with these moody? They just man, these, mo- these moody manks. You know how are you going to deal with them? <laughs> but you know they came. But they sent me the thing is they sent me all these tapes and I never even listened to them. I was like, when they come over, we're going to write together because you know I want if for me to be interested, I have to be involved in writing the song. Yeah, that was how even even with Freeze when they they sent me so many songs, I never even listened to them. I was like, I don't, you know, I mean, 
let's write our let's write the album when you're here. So which is what we did. Um, and with New Order, the same thing. So I was like, you know, that's that like moody Northerners and sort of soul boy Londoners at the time. Yeah, freeze. they didn't really. Yeah, they, I don't think new. I think they were sort of. Like I don't think New Order thought like it was cool for me to be yeah. working doing freeze kind of north south <laughs> musical divide thing. Yeah, I find it quite interesting that you, as a producer, you uh, you're not you, you don't you don't believe in kind of in in listening and then tweaking and making their idea better. You want to do a collaborate? Well, a I was no, I was collaborating for sure. That was what I did. I mean, back then I was like, I you know, I want to collaborate. I don't want to. <clears throat> I don't want to. I'd get for someone's song to really, you know, really catch me. It's really, I, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Like, I did a track with Ash, Life Less Ordinary. I thought I love yeah. that song. So I was like, yeah, I love the song. Let's go do it. Let's, you know, whatever. You know, it, it, it isn't like it never happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with remixes, it was always that way. So a remix is different. So you're yeah. taking someone else's song that hopefully you will like. And usually I did like the songs I was remixing. And I, you know, I add to it. But 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 working on new material, I, I at that time, I like to have it be a collaborative thing. You know, I just thought for, for what I can do, I'm not like an anal producer i'm not like you know i'm not a i'm not an engineer producer i'm more of a vibe and sort of bringing some element to it like back then which was the club bringing the club element to something and my remixes but when i was you know actually starting from scratch i've only had many failures using people's songs that i didn't co-write you know it's like i like to be involved in, in the entire process you know with the uh, confusion song with New Order, did they come to your studio in New York and then you literally just got in there and right, let's just do this from scratch and that's yeah 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 I, I made some beats and and we we actually used a studio in Brooklyn uh, Fred Zara the keyboard player who played on all the Madonna records and many others we went to his studio and I just sort of made a beat and just sort of looked at them and they're like okay play something you know it's like. And, and, and it's funny because Hooky, they all tell the story like they were all, they were all sort of scared shitless in a way because they they had never worked that way, right? And you know that was the only way. And that's that legendary video where you're kind of taking a reels reels. You is, is that the confusion video where you go out to um, the Funhouse, Funhouse, yeah. and, and Paradise Garage? Plays it. Yeah, that, well, that's what we would do because I, it, it, yeah. The other thing I think I was very smart with was becoming friends with good DJs. Cause, because at, at that point I'd make her, I'd make it I'd work on a track and I'd bring it to the mm. club as in that that's like real I would bring the reel to reel to Jellybean and he'd play it you know and not just many play other, it off the bat without even just because you're real rapid we'd precede you and you say oh yeah, I'll get yeah. on and, yeah well you know and, or he'd be working on it with me like yeah. in confusion and 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 I, I, Jellybean was the guy you know I sort of he helped me and I helped him because literally. He had a great club to test the stuff. I was making records for that club, for the Funhouse. But then I'd put his name on the mix and he'd come in and help us, you know. So. perfect litmus test is what I guess. And so, well, I'm presuming, sorry to get anoraki here, but you, so you were bouncing down a two-inch tape down to like, what, a quarter-inch tape and then taking that quarter-inch tape to a club? Yeah, and, and then he would it. play it off a, a quarter-inch reel. Yeah, same night. <laughs> Brilliant! The same night. And then we'd go back and we'd hear like, oh, we don't have enough low end and we'd go More back. And, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and we'd 
could, and we tweaked the mix because it was my studio, so I'd, yeah. I'd leave the mix up and we, you know. Yeah, 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 of course. Perfect. It, it, how, what brilliant road yeah. testing. Yeah. That's yeah. Just, well, that's, a, yeah. I've all, I mean, I, I've always believed, you know, I talk to friends who are DJs, producers now, and I go, yeah, you playing your track? Oh, it's not ready. I go, dude. That's how, are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> You're not playing it and testing it? Come on. That's to me, that's just insanity if you don't do it, because yeah. that way you get to know if it's working or not. You know? Of course, yeah, because nowadays right. it's, it's, it's mastered and you know, it's, it's a fait yeah, accompli, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and it's taken in there. Yeah, yeah. How brilliant that he was playing it off a reel-to-reel. Yeah, yeah. Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. Gosh, what what happened after that then? So you you so uh, so we've had confusion. You worked with New Order. That wasn't you. You, you did two New Order tracks. Didn't I did you? Thieves Like Us also. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, but that that that's a, a somewhat of a funny story. So we finished Confusion. I put that out on my label in America, Streetwise. It came out on Streetwise and also on Factory, obviously. But then we had done another track, and 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 the thing is, we didn't really finish it because we only had a few. We only had two days. We wrote like. Confusion Thieves Like Us recorded it in two days. Yeah. Wow. They and also, you know, Bernard um they all like to go out and, and go clubbing and do what goes along with doing clubbing. <laughs> so he was always ill, you know, like when he did his vocal, he was like <laughs> you know, so the vocals were always done on really quickly with with confusion. Was the video done within his two days as well? No, no, that, they came oh, okay. back into that. They, they came back. God. So is that what was New Order the catalyst for your um can I say love affair with the UK? Which would to your? I thought you were going to say love came with cocaine. Uh, love affair with cocaine. <laughs> well, I cannot. Well, you can. You feel free to answer that. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. They helped out. They helped out. So, well, um, so when did you, um, like, when did you first come to the UK? I guess. See, I didn't. I okay. So basically, I didn't fly for like four years, which which sort of went along with ran, ran um, parallel with doing a lot of cocaine. So I didn't right. like to fly because I was, yeah. you know, whatever. So I didn't come over here till 87. So I missed my big, you know, like the the most successful time was then, you know, with all those records out at once. So I sort of missed that whole time here. But, but I came over in 80, I came over in 87 for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, went to Manchester and Hacienda and did all that. I, I, I started coming here and doing a lot of remixes here. And um, it's funny because I DJed yesterday, and I and I'm starting to sort of do sets where I just play my own music, but but not obvious music. So, but you know, yesterday I, I sort of did a chronologically order of some of the tracks I did when I first came to England. I was playing in a pub, so it actually worked really well. <laughs> I did "Living in a Box" because I did that remix, uh, the, the group "Living in a Box." Oh, yeah. That was like the first remix I did here, which went to my version was like a big. It was they used it for the the, the single, and then I did uh, "Nana Cherry Buffalo Stance" remix, yes, which is a housey sort of yep. tech uh, techy house, <laughs> and then I did. Um, Touched by the hand of God. 
So I played those, uh, the New Order. So I played those three in a row, and they worked, like, because they're very down, more, they're like 112, 113, 115, or whatever. Mm. But I was coming here and doing mixes here, you know? Well, Dom's been dying to ask you about your remixes. <laughs> Dom, <laughs> Dom, go, go, go. I, I was just listening to the, I know all your electro stuff and all, all those kind of amazing tunes you've done on the emergency record stuff and everything, but I didn't realize your, your, how, your, your, your wealth of remixes you did. And um, yeah. so I was, I was just digging through them, like Paul McCartney and Rolling Stones, those yeah. kind of stuff. And the Rolling Stone ones is, is, is a great remix. Uh, remind yeah. me which track that was? Too Much Blood. It's a classic. Like, it's just a classic. Classic. It's it's probably I consume more drugs doing that one right. than any other one. And I, and I did it. I did it with Chris Lord Algae, and we were just so totally off our faces. <laughs> so good things Snoring can happen. The good things can happen. Uh, well, when you're mixing drugs, yeah. okay. when you're mixing a Mick Jagger record, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. Do you think we should play that? Is it, are you? So oh, you, are, you, oh, you track, are proud of that record? It's it's it literally. I mean, I've done re-edits of it and stuff, but it's it's a great. It's a, it's really it's crazy. Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. Trevor Jackson loves it. It's his favorite oh, remix. You know, Trevor, it's a, bless you know, it's like it's 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 a great remix though. It's just very different. And did you ever hear from the band? I know it's obviously a remix, they're not there, but did you yeah, have any interaction yeah, yeah, with Mick? Yeah, and well they Bella? let it come out, man. You know, they don't let anything come out they don't Did they ever call the, you up and say thanks for remix? You ever sort of you've ever had interactions with sort of I've, had, I've, had, them, I've had interactions with, with Mick, <laughs> but not 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 right. not ones I want to uh, repeat, you know. So, <laughs> I, I, I have to ask a question, what was your favorite remix or and second you were a challenging remix, which you sort of thought, oh, I'm not going to do it, but I'm getting paid lots or something. You know, your well, remix, you know, two very that different questions. Tell you, yeah. I can tell so, you very quickly the Paul McCartney one. Right. Well, that was a pain in the ass. Well, it, no, it just wasn't a, it was not a good song for me to remix, you yeah. know? Uh, and they paid me like 30 grand, so I did it. But but now, you know what, again, as I'm looking back a bit and trying to put together these sets where it's just my music, but not like obvious. and. Yeah. You know, there's like bits of No More Lonely Night, which is the, the, the thing I did for, for Paul McCartney. There's a few loops that are killer. So right. basically, I'm starting to do loop. Remix loop. or remix. Well, yeah, for sure. Do, to, 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 to do that. But I would say the one I'm sort of most proud of remix-wise that I can always play and that always does well and that the people at the record company didn't think it would – the guy who was the club promoter said – why are you? Why are they hiring you to do this? It's not a. It, mm. It's not a dance record. Which it's it, it, Big Love by Fleetwood Mac. Right. And oh I, wow. And yes. I played, I and I and I played that yesterday again at this gig, and people go. No, I mean it's a it's a great it's like it, it, it's the first. I could easily say the first house mix of a rock record. It's definitely the first house mix. I had David Cole playing on it. I mean it's 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 a legitimate. It's you know to me it's like one of those records people sometimes sleep on but it it when when I played it yesterday I was like 
wow, this was really taking a, a, a risk because yeah. they were the biggest band at the time, you know. And, wow, to uh, have those separates. Yeah, must I have it. Oh, oh you, you still, still got them. them. Oh, of course I do. <laughs> uh, Stevie Nicks, you know, looking out for love. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, gotta, yeah, wow. yeah no, but I play, you know, it, 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 it plays... It it does amazingly well when I played it yesterday. But it does. They are so they are so enduring, aren't they? Yeah. Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. As we record this, they are yeah. shortly going to play in the UK. Yeah. And I know yeah. somebody who's like, you know, my dad's age, pretty much, who's got a ticket. And then yeah. I know someone who's like 19, 20, who's still at university, yeah, who's, who's bought a ticket to see what you know, they, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's lovely when a band can appeal to sort of three generations of, of yeah. people yeah. at the same gig. It's, Absolutely. it's, it's amazing. The re- talking of remixes, the remix culture arguably kind of started in New York with like extended mixes and all that stuff. And you, I learned recently, you, you had like a lot of involvement with the yeah, Latin Rascals, who the, the early mixtapes they had on uh, yeah. WBLS or no, Kiss, K- uh, K- Kiss, Kiss, KTU actually it was revolutionary. KTU. As far as yeah. you listen back to how early these things are, they're like cutting, scratching, and I guess before you had samplers and stuff. And I often wondered a how they're doing it, and b what was your involvement, if anything, with those guys because they were just well. No, I gave heroes. them their first. I, I gave them their first right job. They worked for me. So okay, but the, how I learned about them was I I was listening to KTU, and they would use all my re- they would. The mixtapes were my records, so I'd go. God, how did I want them mix? I want them editing my records. Did they do that on tape? Cut up tapes? And no, they, they didn't even cut anything. They were doing bo- pause, pause button <laughs> edits. Pause. Wow. Wow. All those guys started using pause buttons. Then yeah. they started cutting tape, but. They were making them with yeah. a pause button. But it still sounded great. <laughs> we made mixtapes when we were at school. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, that's Double what they were. They player. were kids. Yeah. They were, the Rascals were like 16. They were, they, were, wow. they, were, they were still in school, and they came to see me. And, you know, because I, I heard it on, on KTU, and uh, I was like, I need these guys editing my, my, my records because they were just so, they so part of far. Kind of crew. So they became part of yeah. my crew, and, you know, we're still friends to this day. That's like 80, that was like 85. Definitely worth checking out their mixes on YouTube. It's quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, the, they're, 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 well, let's forward spin a bit now to, okay. to, you, to you coming to England, so to, to, to the UK. I mean, yeah. so, and you moved here lock, stock and barrel? Yeah, much. I, I moved. I moved here like um, I'd say. As I said, I first came over in eighty seven, eighty eight, and I rented an apartment, and I was here a lot. And then, then I um, I sort of moved over here. I'd say around ninety four or five. It's all sort of a blur. Yeah, of course. Cool. So, well, so here's a question: When you were here in sort of eighty eight to ninety one, did you get involved in the, the rave in the oh, illegal yeah. rave scene that was going on? Yeah, Some for love. sure. I was here for that. Yeah. I was here, yeah. And and it's funny because I was working with ABC, you know, with with Mark and and uh, and uh, Martin Fry. Yes, yes. So uh, the first rave I went to, I went with the two of them. <laughs> and who knows where it was? I think it was out near Heathrow or something in a warehouse with a bouncy castle and the whole thing. And because uh, I did a, um, I did a remix for. Remember, they did a. I think they did a version of "I Want Your Love." The Chic song. Ah. They did a version, and and uh, well, they produced it. It was Paul Rutherford, 
from um, Frankie Frank Goes it, to Hollywood. Yeah. He sang it, but they produced it. I did the remix of it. And uh-huh. uh, so we were all had. So I'm hanging out with them and Paul Rutherford, and we're going to the, going to raves. Yeah, it was, I was here for that, for sure. It, it, uh, yeah. And, so, and what was your, uh, your motivation for moving here fully? Um, probably a, a woman. It was a girl. You yeah. fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> At the rave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So and I was, a, you know, I was, a, I was burnt out from New York, to be honest. You yeah. Know? Change Literally, you know, I was there in the 80s. Once I went to 90, it, it changed. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, I was looking to do different things. And, you know, and, and musically, I don't know. It's sort of, you know, you just sort of change I wanted to just change locations and see what would happen. Was that also when they sort of start the kind of like hardcores at Giuliani Laws in New York and they sort of shutting down clubs? Was that that was that that come later? Was that come some part of the reason? Yeah, that came around maybe a little later, but you know there were always clubs. Even when he was doing that, there were clubs, and a lot of the clubs shut. Not for those reasons, you know. It it just Just ended us. It was a good. It was a good excuse, but I mean, it wasn't. I'm saying, yeah, he's an he's a. He's a jerk in, yeah. in any case, and he did he didn't help the club scene. But um, but I I was spending much more time over here, right. and then I got involved with my mogul, my 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 uh, what, what were you calling pub mogul? Pub mogul. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So 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 you're yeah. here yeah. as a record so, producer. So I'm here. And, I had to do something else, you know. And, and you've 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 you just fancied like um, you know taking a break, a sabbatical from from your music career, and you started the Elbow Room at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was probably around ninety four or five, I think, around then. Where was the first one? Was it was it in West London? Yeah, West London. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I moved. I actually moved over, rented an apartment on Westbourne Grove, right yes, down I from from the Elbow Room, and that was when you know because I'm investing money, we're opening a bar. I figured I should come and sort of watch the watch the store a bit, and then <clears throat> from there, I that's I just was living here really after that, mm. you know, and then I opened up Harlem about four years after that, so. Four That's or five. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, in, in retrospect, they were the the elbow room was a great idea, and and we had issues, so you know we didn't become rich. And then Harlem was a great idea, but it was a stupid idea to <laughs> to open a restaurant. Any 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 musicians or record producers or anything shouldn't do it unless they just. Just give me your money instead of blowing it. I'll, I'll keep. I'll keep it safe. <laughs> really? Because because the yeah. elbow room became massive. It was a, it was a it was oh, yeah. Like, but that there was, was one a, in Leeds and one yeah. in, they were everywhere. Yeah, and then someone got shot in the one in Chapel Market on New Year's Eve, and it a totally riced. Is brought, that what happened? Yeah, it totally brought that one down, and that was the one we were actually making all the money with. You oh know? no! Uh, uh, yeah, oh, but man, you know it's it's it is what it is. But um, Emmanuel. Dibertai, I think his name is. You know, he used to work. He he, he from from a Daft Punk, mm. French uh, record label owner. Yes, he 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 called me up and said, "Oh, Arthur, I'm I'm thinking of doing this restaurant in Paris." I said, "Listen, I'll I'll save you a lot of heartache. <laughs> Don't give me your no. money. <laughs> I'll set it on fire. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll hold it for you." And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he did the, and he did it, and I think he lost all you know, all his money. But you know, whatever. So is that no, <laughs> no more pub mogul stuff for you now? Then is that kind of all? Well, I'm doing movies now. Now, right. I'm, now I'm a movie mogul. You know, 
doing documentaries, which is another way not to make money. So <laughs> when you say you're doing documentaries, you're making the music. Right. That no, it, no, no. I'm a pro- I produced. I already produced two music documentaries. Oh, you're producing music yeah, documentaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ah, okay. So tell yeah. us about that. What have you done? Well, I did one called Finding the Funk with Nelson George directed it, and it was for uh, VH1. It was a rock doc on the, on the history of funk. And we got like the most coherent Sly Stone interview in like – 30 years I'd say it's 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 it occasionally shows up on VH1 it's it was right before everyone was looking for content you know it's like yes. now everyone's looking for content back then no one gave a shit about music docs but the other one came out on Apple that's the 808 doc so that you know Oh yes. Oh that was yeah. yours. Yeah that was mine. Oh yeah. amazing. Yeah. Ah, of course it was. Who else is going to do an 808 talk? Come on, you know. And, oh, I'm, and, I'm do, and I'm doing one now on on my group Rockers Revenge. Like we hadn't seen each other or worked together in 30 years, and literally through the internet we reconnected, made some music, and I thought. There's a lot of reasons when you see the film, but I thought, oh, I, I should really document what we're doing and what we're yeah. going to do. And I've been working at that. That one I'm directing, which that was when, a, when is that that's another out? stupid thing to do. Direct and I'm a juice. Well, produce them. I'm doing their album, producing an album and directing a film and trying to shoot. Like I did strings last week with Leroy Burgess uh, doing the arrangement. Well, Patrick Adams did the arrangement. Lee, Leroy Burgess is is conducting, and I'm have to one ear got to be a record producer to listen, <laughs> and the other ear got to be the film director to make sure I get the right shot. So it was challenging, dumb. <laughs> <laughs> when is that? When is that due out? After? Well, hopefully next year when I find some financing. But you know, because it's not an obvious. Yeah, it's more like a Sugarman. It's more like a human interest story about these people who had a big hit walking on sunshine and then it all went away very quickly and yeah. what their lives were like and coming back and, and you know. But I got I got a great Eddie Grant interview because he, he wrote Walking on Sunshine. Yeah. So that's the big score I got was a really good Eddie Grant interview. Now the this is this is fascinating, but the but the downside of uh, Arthur Baker being in a room with two people with severe ADHD yeah, is that, you, is that we've, we've jumped <laughs> from the nineties to now, yeah, and we've completely missed. We've completely missed. Well, we're, we're, well, I guess is well, is there t- anything musically that we need to cover in the nineties? God, yeah. How about I, Babylon Zoo? Come on! Oh my God! Of course. <laughs> yeah. Were you re, were you produced I, that or you no, remixed, I remixed that? the version? Yeah. The Levi's. Uh, oh my yeah. God! Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. Miss that one come that on huge and they use your remix as actual yeah, version that out, was right? very, i got it literally you know how you never take points on a on yeah. a remix because who cares it's not going to sell that one i took points on literally i actually made i probably made like a hundred grand or something on points i mean you know you never make because money. yeah people uh, were st- people were buying cds but i had like then. super random when i was living in london Super random records, like records you wouldn't know I was involved with. That the Pet Shop Boy one. Well, that yeah, that's yeah. like that makes sense. But how about the B side of the Wet 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 single? That was the biggest single of all time. Their Love Is in the oh, Love Is in yeah. the Air. Oh. I had the B side, and I had points on that. Too. Oh God! Wow! Well done. And <laughs> the other one, the other one, the Hurts, the record, Wonderful Life. Ah, oh, right. That yes, was more recent. recent. I, yeah. they, that was my but mix. Did, the, did you uh, have points in the Pet Shop Boy one? Because I think Pet Shop Boys that got used on the uh, the Clothes Show for about six years. Their intro, probably not. Probably not. Uh. 
We should hear, we should remind ourselves of that Babylon, of Babylon yes. Zoo. Yeah. I've still got the CD single of that somewhere. Yeah. It's a tune. Well, it's a tune. Everyone got the single. Yeah. It sold, it was it the was, biggest selling single it, of all time, you know? Was it really? Of that, at that time, that's yeah. A, wow. At that time. Incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Trailblazers. Arthur Baker. Then I did Freedom. I did the Freedom, Robbie Williams version of Freedom. Ah. Remember when he, that was his first record? I did one of the, re, I did the, the, the remix for that. So I've had some really odd. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm proud EMI. of the, I'm not so proud of it the musically, but they're like just footnotes in history, English yeah. culture, you know. Was the it, did you have some, some, someone that really liked you at EMI that was giving you all the. Send it to yeah. Arthur. <laughs> yeah, let's give it to Arthur. I think, well, Chris Briggs, uh, I think he was there with Robbie, but, but the. Uh, the Babylon Zoo was was Clive Black. Uh-huh. He had signed them. And I did, well, what's really crazy is I did that mix two years earlier. And then literally he left and moved to another label. He had it at Warner's. And then he took it, I guess, to EMI or wherever yeah. it came out. And then they put it out and then it got on the ad. And then right. I was like, Arthur, you know, that record you did, it's like number one. I was like, <laughs> holy, yeah. It was It, it was, was ad first with that one, I think. Yeah. It was ad first and then it came. Yeah. Thank you, Levi's. Yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> huge. Yeah, yeah that was, of- that was, and then I worked with him again and I did like a couple of the tracks and he, uh, he was actually a talented guy, but I think he, he was definitely his own worst enemy for sure. You know, he was not a, mm. yeah, artist. So, <laughs> jazz man. Should we should we should we burst into the noughties now? Should we yeah. hit the millennium and come to the other side now? Okay. So, and the thing that I want to that I want to cover in uh, in the early part of this millennium is your amazing club return yeah. to New York. Yeah, that gets that gets slept on. That we 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 sort of. Me and Sean McCluskey sort of created this club, which was called Return to New York, and we did it at the Great Eastern Hotel to begin with. And what we wanted to do was it was it, it we we started it right after September 11th, right after maybe a year later, when New York was starting to revive. And it's funny how it all came about because I, Fader magazine wanted me to write an article about the new New York. Okay, mm. Fader. And I'm on the it's a, it, I'm on the beach in Barcelona there for Sonar, and I have to finish writing this thing. And I write this article, and it's kicking around somewhere in the internet now. And then it's like I'm talking about New York coming back, and then I go, and maybe someday, maybe now I can return to New York. And I go, return to New York. Wow, let's. That was it. I it was that aha moment. I'm going to do a party called Return to New York, which I started, and our first gig was Pet Shop Boys and New Order DJing together and um and Soul Wax? Soul you, Wax. Do you have Steph and Dave because they, rem- they Dave and Steph were were my they were like residents. Yeah. yeah. But the the icing on the cake it was the first LCD sound system that's live gig. Right. That's right. <laughs> they had never played and and th- this there is a there is a connection with XFM because at that time I had, had my show on XFM. I don't think I w- it wasn't on anymore, but I was still like really locked in and listening to you and listening yeah. to everybody. And I heard 
losing my edge, and I just like pulled the car over, called XFM, <laughs> called X, because yeah. it was obviously no Shazam, called yeah. XFM and go, what was that? And I find out, and I find out it's on output. I know Trevor. That was that would called, have been me playing. That. Yeah, you would have been playing it. <laughs> I called. I called. I may have called you and asked. Yeah, you, you would have. You, I think you did call me and, and asked me. And yeah. literally. I, I called Trevor and I get James's number. So I call James and I go, listen, I'm doing this party. Do you guys want to, do, do you have a band? He, oh yeah, we have a band. I go, uh, do you want to come to London? Yeah, yeah, we'll come. Definitely, definitely. Hang up. He tells me later. Now, now I know he had no fucking, he had no band. <laughs> <laughs> of course I've got a band. <laughs> they never played, wait, never yeah. played live because yeah, he had no band. Studio. Yeah. It, was a, it was a studio. So thing. he puts a band together and literally we finance putting the band together because wow. we sent him half the money and we fly him over and they do a gig and it was unbelievable. Amazing. Well, yeah, because you had it was, like it was 2002, or, and, yeah. and you you were it was 2,000 people or something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So was, you you had you know you had a budget that could fly a band over. Well, no, York. but we had no money until, until after the yes, gig. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to finance it yourself. You know, so we financed it, our, me and Sean, yeah. and we had I think Pioneer was some sort of sponsor. They gave us maybe yeah. a couple of grand, but yeah. you know, we had I mean literally, and th- and then. Uh, it blew up, and it was. It, we'd do it every few months, and it was super. But we just me and me and Sean just sort of neither of us were really good businessmen, and we blew it because it could have been like a big brand by now. Like, and that was sort of the birth of almost electro clash. Well, it was. Well, it was, it was electro clash. Yeah. Yeah. It was that. It was that new. You know, it was the new electro thing. Yeah. So you know, like I, I, I got Steph and Dave Davala over to the UK for the first time as DJs to come and play on XFM in right. 99, 2000, whenever it was. And uh, they were just, you know, they weren't even called, they were just called the Flying Davala Brothers yeah. then. And, Absolutely, you know, t- yeah. too, uh, too many DJs wasn't a thing that happened. But and then, and you, then, but then they, and they, you know, played my club night for nothing and all that and mm-hmm. in cargo. But then yeah. you, like a few years later, you absolutely got your finger like totally <laughs> yeah. on the zeitgeist, you know. Sorry, I'm the had, mixing metaphors, but it was, I it had, was the night that complete, it was the best night of, it was the Paradise Garage of its time yeah, in yeah, the early noughties. Yeah, yeah, you know, it yeah, was, was yeah. exactly, it was where you had to be it was where you would hear that waspy electro <laughs> sound that kind yeah. of like that justice then yeah. kind of took yeah. and the soul wax started the, the boys then you know started becoming too many djs and started really well, getting into techno <clears throat> into- well i i obviously heard them on your show and then basically i got charlotte to bring them to when i the opened marketing at XFM. yeah when i when i when i when i um when we opened up the elbow room in chapel market i used to do a a, a sunday like a Sunday party at, at, at Chapel Market. And I had them play, they played the party. That was way before, that was before I, uh, that was the first time I met them was there. And then obviously and that was crates of vinyl. Then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was, crates of that, vinyl. Was, that was, that was a few years before, um, um, return to New York. Yeah. That was like probably, yeah, because I can t- I know by what girlfriends I was with. So this was <laughs> still in the nineties when 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 they started DJing. Yeah, but they weren't Solwack. Uh, yeah, too yeah. many DJs. Yeah, yeah, that was just the Flying Davala brothers. Yeah, yeah, but then also the other record that I heard first on XFM was was Peaches, which oh, I'm sure yes. you played that too. You Fuck know? the pain away. Yeah, and that was another moment. Pull the car over. Call XFM. <laughs> who is that? Who is Hello, that? Arthur. Who is that? And I booked. Her and she played. She played Return to New York. Also, yeah. Yes, that's right. We talked a lot in those days. Yeah, I came to yeah, see you yeah, in your in, yeah. In, in but but um, 
Yeah, they were great parties. I mean, it was it was literally everyone was there, and it was you know everyone from from Kate Moss to to Mick Jones. It was just like the whole yeah. scene was there. We we have to play LCD sound system. Okay. Now. I, okay. I guess it's got to be losing my edge. Yeah, it? I guess it has to. Yeah. Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. So losing my edge, LCD sound system. I still think of Killing Joke whenever I hear that. You know, it's oh, got yeah, yeah it's yeah. got that. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really inspired by James. Uh, James has a lot of influences. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, but yeah, but what, he is in the in like last year he was DJing in at the Soho House in Miami, and he was fairly drunk, and he was like, "Man, did I ever thank you for you know for <laughs> letting us play your party?" <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe once or twice, but you can thank me again. <laughs> I think he thanked, didn't he thank you publicly in the, uh, in the documentary, in the LCD Oh, did he? I, didn't, I never saw I th- it. Yeah. I, th- I think, I'm pretty sure he did. Oh, My that would be nice. slightly hazy. That would have been nice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he did. But what a, yeah, what a career he's had. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's know, great. And he, he's, de- when he, his DJ sets are just off the yeah. fucking, they're unbelievable. He just plays records. I've heard most records that I think I should hear, but he plays records like I've never heard and I I wish I had heard him earlier, you know. <laughs> really? Yeah, he just plays, he's just got these rare, I don't know what, you know, he's just got he plays a lot of records I haven't heard, which is, you know. That are really, really and good. They're I old, wish you, yeah. And they're old and they're not new. Like, yeah, yeah I, you can play records all day, new ones I haven't heard, but old records that from that time that I yeah. haven't heard, it's, yeah. True impressive, impressive. Let's come up to speed and just and maybe um, make it less about you and, and somebody that's that's inspired you recently. Is there a new band or a newer artist or a producer that you've really thought in oh, the last man. in the last decade? We can say <laughs> in the you're last putting decade. Me on the spot. There, well, I mean, yeah, no, no, I should know. I should have this answer, but I well, I'm, let me give well, me. Well, okay. Well, what was the last what was the last record that you actually bought? That you went, or that you actually went and downloaded, like that, 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 you know, because you're obviously in a in a privileged position, as all we all are, of getting sent stuff by everybody. God, but what like, if? What but if? I, is, is there? I'm I, gonna, mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of what I've. You know what? I'll be. I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm making so much of my own music now, constantly. Yeah. That when I listen to music now, it's usually in a club. You know, right. I don't listen at home. I don't sit. I don't download unless I, if I hear something in a club and then I go, wow, that sounded great. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go and download it, you know? Yeah. And I'm, God, I got to really come up with something too because I don't want to look what? like I don't have a clue. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I put you on the spot. Well, well, no, no, but you, but I should be able to like come up with something, you know. I well, find I find that question hard as well because, like, sometimes when as a producer, when I listen to music, I'm actually looking for samples. When people ask, me, "What's the latest thing you're listening to?" I get a bit stuck as well. I'm like, yeah. uh, "What new bands? I don't listen to new bands. Yeah, I just listen to I old know. stuff." I, I, if, if I had five minutes to go online, I could remember yeah, what I what I'd like. Same, but uh, okay, I'll tell you. I'm going to give someone like a good good. There's a group called Watch the Duck. Do you know them? No, I don't. Do you know them? No. It's the biggest, literally the biggest tragedy in music. I know that no one knows them. Who should? Because here's the thing: they made their last record. They made with uh, Pharrell Williams. 
Oh, really? Wow. They're American. Yeah, but they're the, the 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 singer. His name's Jesse. He is the closest thing to a great soul singer, you know, uh, that's around now. And literally, and they're hip hop too. So they're like hip hop. They lived in the UK. I met them. They used to be Beyonce's hype guys, Eddie and 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 Jesse, and they're. His voice. I mean, we just did a we did a record together. We spent like two hours in the studio and we did this record. But his voice is Otis Redding meets James Brown. No one sings like that. The closest was the guy from Gnarls Barkley. Um, oh yes, right. yes, Cee-Lo. Cee-Lo. Yeah, CeeLo. But this guy is. It's such a. I mean, I'll say him because literally, his voice. No one sounds like. There's no. We're we're the great male. Just watch the duck. Watch the duck. Watch I think the that's duck. Okay. Well, so we need to play. We need to play. Well, yeah. one should, of these yeah, tunes. Yeah, they have a track. They're they're big. Well, they're they had a track called "Popping Off," that was. But the thing is, not only is he a great singer, but they were the guys who did. They were doing like dubstep with soul on top, and you would think you'd hear the song and you think that's a vocal sample, but it's him singing. Right. It's just okay. like the it's the got most, that timeless quality about it. He just sounds. I don't understand. They, they, it's either their management or their label. I think they're now on Wycliffe's label, maybe. I don't know. But no one. But the thing is, being that they lived in London, they were going to Brixton and hanging well, out, inference. and they got the yeah. dubstep thing. Like, but I think I think they're. I mean, he is a great singer. He they opened up during um, Basil. They opened up for um, for Pharrell. And, wow! And literally, it, it was like a, a American Express Platinum event, you know. And, and so, literally, he they play, and then he uh, he Pharrell comes on, and um, basically, after the gig, I meet these people who I know. They're like not music, you know. They're just regular. And and I went, oh, so what do you think of the show? The 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 the, the, the wife, my friend's wife, said, God, you know. That first group was just so much better than he was. I go, oh, so people get it, but for some reason, they just have not had any. I mean, no one in the record business knows him. Literally, I've asked people who sh- you would think would know in America and here, no one knows him. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real, you it's need a to crime. Get to know them. Well, I'm telling you, thumbs up from Arthur Baker yeah. is a, is a <laughs> mighty fine yeah. thing. Yeah. Trailblazers. Ask enough questions. Back to ADHD, rewind a little bit. Um, <laughs> both got ADHD. Uh, Planet Rock, the actual influence that tunes had on uh, so many genres, was tricked by you mentioned dubstep, however, but like Electro, Miami Bass, Breakbeat, even to a certain extent, drum and bass, and even maybe possibly even dubstep, and even two-step. Two-step uh, for sure, yeah. because they use that the, you know, that other beat, yeah, the, yeah. Doctor, the Captain Sky beat, the, the sort Super. of... Sperm. Super yeah. sperm beat. Yeah, yeah. But, That's like that was on every record. But you know? surely every Miami bass tune and and, yeah. the, and also ask ask, ask yeah. about the freestyle thing. Yeah. Did you you arguably made the first uh, freestyle record with um, Planet Patrol? Yeah, that's New York freestyle. But yeah, 
How did that? Huh. Was that before the kind of like Latin-y Florida yeah, freestyle? Yeah, for like, sure. Yeah. See, arguably you in off yeah. bacon <laughs> freestyle, which is kind of a, yeah, yeah. a super niche, but kind of a big thing at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it, coming back too. Yeah. Actually, freestyle. Yeah. So then there's two step and definitely yeah. breakbeat. Yeah. I mean, uh, the kind of that we play and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the whole Miami bassy knows yeah. a sort of a thing to you and yeah. the freestyle scene and and also the scenes like weird micro scenes. Um, there's the, the ghetto tech thing in Detroit, which is like DJ Soul kind of thing. It's a yeah. sped up version of yeah. like rock, arguably. Yeah. Yeah. There's a favela <laughs> funk thing in Brazil where they sort yeah. of the gangs play this kind Look of thing. Look at that. See, I, I, yeah. told, I told these you. are all I, the things that he touches on in his, Dom, in oh, his yeah. like Stanton Warrior set. So Basically, it, Dom wouldn't have a career without you. Without you. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. But, I mean, I'm I did, not. <laughs> I did tell yeah. my wife that we changed musical history with that track. You did. I mean, so we did. And you know? it's still to this day, people being influenced by stuff. There's some tracks actually recently which um, <laughs> have been on Radio 1 by some sort of very new thing to, I can't remember the names now the Prosper track which mm. has been signed up which is the kind of breakbeat tunes of an 808 and electro kind of keys and stuff and yeah. like Pete Tongs and tune and there's another oh. one um, Frankie Wah which is a breakbeat thing with electro kind of tinges to it which is arguably from using that kind of sound even yeah. inadvertently of that kind of, of Planet Rock and stuff so to this day the legend yeah, well thank you yeah <laughs> I guess that's an awkward. I guess, I guess, wait a minute. I guess that's why I'm a trailblazer. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Are. Number one trailblazer. There had to be something. To yeah, wow. <laughs> totally. Guess, so, yeah. Arthur, looking back on your on your shimmering career, yeah. is there a, is there a, an artist that you that, what, what was who was the one that got away for you? Or somebody that you really wanted to work well, with? Well, Mariah you, Carey. Oh, really? It's Mariah. I, I, I discovered her, and I, I she wow. slipped away. Um, I'd say her are the Beastie Boys, but 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 the two of them. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, so how... You and then New Edition actually so got on. away after, <laughs> hang on a second. after so one album. There's got to be a story here. You discovered Mariah Carey? Yeah, I just, well, we were at a party. I was at a party, a record release party for Seventh Wonder, Patsy Kensen, right? Uh-huh. Now, there's all, all sorts of connections here. The Pet Shop Boys did that record. She had one record, Seventh Wonder, featuring yeah. Patsy Kensen, or Eighth Wonder. Not eighth, oh, yeah, Eighth, eighth Wonder, Wonder yeah. okay. Eighth Wonder, P- Patsy Kensen. So they're putting it out on, 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 on Epic. There's a new label called WTG, which stood for Walter Yetnikoff, Tommy Mottola, and Jerry Greenberg. So the three right. of them own th- this label. Now, I'm at this party, and it's at a recording studio in New York. And, you know, it's like everyone's there. It's a big deal. Patsy Kenton, they're all there. And this girl comes up to Brenda K. Starr, who is an artist who I've worked with, and I discovered her. And she said, oh, um... This is my friend, you know, this is my friend and she's a singer. She's my background singer, but she has a great demo and blah, 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 blah. And I go, okay, well, do you want, let's go to my studio. Uh, we'll go listen to it in my studio because, I, you know, it's like 10 minutes away. After the party, let's go. We'll go to the studio. Fine. So then they walk away and Matola grabs me and goes, hey, who's the broad with the body? I'm like, I'm like, I I said, Brent, Brenda? And no, not Brenda. I know Brenda. No, the other one. I go, it's her background singer. And she goes, he goes, is she any good? I go, I don't know. I haven't heard, I haven't heard her sing. Go get her. So I like go, I'm like pimping for Tommy Matola. Yeah. I bring her over. She's talking and Jerry and Walter Yetnikoff, they're all there. And she takes a cassette out and she goes to give it to Jerry and Tommy grabs it from Jerry and puts it in his pocket. Because okay? he wanted a phone number. So, 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 okay, <laughs> but check it out. So, after the party, we go back to my studio. So, we go in the studio, put in the cassette. It's Visions of Love. And it's not like a shitty demo. It's literally, it sounds like the record. 
like literally. And I'm like, oh, my God, this this girl is going to be the biggest thing in the world. And there were these two girls outside, these two singers um, out in the other room, these two black girls. And they, oh, who is that singing? That's amazing. And it's Mar- Mariah goes, oh, that's me. And, you know. They go no fucking way. <laughs> so, so, no, this is a true story. So she, so she, starts singing "Visions of Love," right? And it's like it's Mariah Carey, yeah, yeah. And one of the girls was Angie B. Stone. You know, she was signed to me, and you yeah, know, Andy B. Angie B. was great singer. Wow. So she's like, going, oh my god. So I'm like going, I'm freaking out because I know if Matola doesn't have that cassette. I'm going to sign this girl, but he has the cassette and he wants to screw her. So I'm like, I'm screwed. Yeah. I call up my manager who was this guy, Bennett Freed, who was managing ABC and Gardner Cole and in LA. And I said, listen, get on the red eye. There's a, you know, there's the biggest artist in the world is sitting here and Matola got the tape. So you've got to like, I said, here's my credit card. I'll pay for your flight. Get on the red eye. No, no, let me hear it. Let me, I said, no, you know, I'll play you the Trust cassette. Yeah. I, I said, I know this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then, you know, he didn't come and then he heard it and then he came. But by then Tommy had already yeah, moved, swooped made, in, made his move. But <laughs> oh my and God. And the thing is, no one, Tommy wrote a book. <laughs> no, that's not in his book. Mariah literally was on the Charlie Rose show, which is a talk show about maybe six or seven years ago. And my dad called and said, oh, Mar- Mar- Mariah just said how you, she met Tommy at a, at a party at your, uh, your house. I'm like, <laughs> if that's how she remembers it, it's sort of crazy, but you know, but I still have the cassette. So I have, wow, I have wow. the evidence. I kept that cassette. I have, wow. the, I, I have the only crazy story. She wow. doesn't even have the cassette. Obviously, no one has. I have the one cassette. That so. needs to be in a in I don't frame, know. in a box frame. <laughs> Break glass in case of emergency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the one that got away, if you want to. Wow. You know. Well, that's an, gosh, that's a, that will never be topped by, I think, any, no. uh, <laughs> any, I'll, I'll ask that to everyone, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. The, the most supreme answer. <laughs> Trailblazers, Arthur Baker. I had a vision So we always end in the same way, yeah. By uh, by painting this scenario where the aliens come and they are they are surveying the uh, our humble solar system for some kind of a superhighway, galactic superhighway, and they're looking for you know they're looking for which way to go, and uh, they're thinking, shall we shall we destroy this uh, this weird third rock, whatever it is, from the sun. And, uh, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is. No, it's not <laughs> fifth third. Rock, fifth, yeah. Stone from the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, they're here and you've got, you've got one chance to play them a record that will save the Earth. Okay. So I've, what would I've that be? I've decided easily. Love will tear us apart. Joy oh, Division, wow. Yeah. Wow. You want to you want to affect them emotionally. Yeah. You want to bum them out. Yeah. Well, no. You want to <laughs> you want to show them that we have heart and soul. And that's yeah. like a very good. Uh, 
I, yeah. was, I was just alluding to your previous, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. your New York thing. Just, right. God, those, those, those moody Mancunians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're going to choose those moody Mancunians. Yeah. Well, um, that's, uh, that is a very noble and uh, very beautiful choice. Uh, you, I mean, you'll certainly, if they're capable, these aliens of crying, then uh, they, they probably, <laughs> they probably would do. Yeah. Trailblazers. Arthur Baker. Yeah, so, um, so Dom, unless you've got anything to, uh, to, to, I to think add. we covered all bases. I think um, you are definitely a trailblazer, <laughs> and uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, the other thing is, are. I'm still making a lot of new music. Which, yeah, exactly. You know, well, so yeah, what is what on the horizon projects? for you? Apart from the, you know, you've got your these uh, product well, TV productions that you're doing. Well, I've got the I've got the Rockers Revenge album, which is almost finished, and. Uh, you know, we that, had that's coming out on, on New State Records. Well, we had yeah. the the first one, the first single came out on Crosstown Rebels, okay. and then Damien put out the first one, and now the, the the recent one that that Full Intention did that mix that got a lot of play, that's out on New New State. My label baked recordings through New State, right? And now I have a new, we have a new one that's going to come out this summer, and then I've got the album, and I'm not, you know, I'm looking mm. to take it a, another step higher, like try to get someone who sees the the potential in the in the movie and the album you know so i need I i'm need, excited for this movie i think it sounds yeah it's i mean we it's really good yeah. good good stuff and then i just did a i did a track um that Derek carter did a remix of and you know i've got something with junior sanchez i got something with reva star and all collaborations with merc favorites of mine yeah we did we did uh as a matter of fact i've got i've got an ep with Murak coming out prob- on Exploited Records, you know, Exploited from Berlin. Right, okay, you yeah. Know. So, yeah, making, I mean, the the music's pretty damn current. And, and you're, you're DJing all over the place. I came down to your gig uh, not so long ago in uh, Notting Hill. And remember in uh, the basement of that... Uh, not so long Notting ago. Notting Hill Arts Club? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no um, not so long ago. This is probably 10 years no, ago. No, 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 Re- recently. Remember we were... Uh, Maybe a few months ago, in that place by Treadic Towers, and you played in the um, there's restaurant upstairs, and I've club in the basement by the Trellic. That's my old that's my <laughs> yeah, old neighbourhood. Um, oh, L- yeah, Lalo, uh, Lalo, yes, right. I played at Lalo. That's yeah. true. And I was that's true. Down there, yeah, yeah. No, I've I've decided. As I said, I played I played probably one of my favourite sets I've played in in years. Just yesterday, so yeah. I'm really buzzing on it because I really sort of. Planned it out a bit, which I never do, and just thought your own stuff and just my yeah. own stuff. But you know, there was like an hour of new music, yeah. and it and 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 it, it totally. So enjoying a DJ, and that's just going to be a continual thing as well. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I'd like to make more money than I do on it. Yeah. Like all of us, you know. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Arthur, it's, it's, it's heartwarming. I guess it's, I guess it's asking a lot to get paid for DJing these days. But we yeah. started this. We started this thing off, you know, with you going. Yeah. Oh, I didn't want to be a DJ, and yeah. now you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the best. It's the best research for making music. Yeah. You know, and yeah. test your music out, as you said. You know, it's an ideal way of uh, making something, testing it out, and come out the next no, day. No, I've got, I've got, I've got three or four. I mean, I mean the the one the one track that I've had recently, which is actually a great, it's a good story. I don't. You probably won't have room to use it, but it's a good story. Yeah, far away. About five. Okay, about five years ago, I started with the guys from New State, and they were gonna we're gonna do this label. 
And I had this track. I had sort of been, it was a sample of a record I had done in 78, like literally one of my first records never came out. And I had been working on it for 10 years, like 10 years since, well, so it would have been like 15 years ago, looping it and trying to make it like a disco filter, disc, French filter disco yep. thing. So I had it and I played, I played it to them and it was a demo. It wasn't, and they go, what's that? What's that? And I go, oh. It's just something you should finish that. That should be your first release. So I go in with Al P from Mastercraft, you know, who mm, I think yes. you know. And he helps me engineer and, and we and we get it together. And we the guys from New State say, We'll get it to Annie Mack. She'll love this. This is we're talking five years ago. So they get her the track and she plays it like the first day she gets it. And she plays it, makes it her record of the week, and it starts going nuts and Pete Tong plays it. Everyone's playing it because we don't put a name on it. We call it Disco Mystery. It was called Disco Mystery. Yeah. So literally, we've got this track. I've got Chromeo, um, uh, uh, Dave from Chromeo singing on it. Yeah. And it's like this great track. So literally, Bidding War starts. That's why this is such a great story. <laughs> bidding War. And like three different labels at Sony want it, right? Mm. And literally, those... Uh, um, God, what, what's the name of the guy from the uh, from the um, from the talent show? Had his Simon uh, Cowell. Simon Cowell's label was Psycho. Psycho. Yeah. Psycho. Psycho. Psycho won it, and then uh, Julian Palmer and Mike Pickering won it. Ah, they don't know it's another me. Another former Trailblazer guest, yeah. but they don't know it's me, right? Yeah, they don't yeah. know it's me. So we're like going in, and finally we go for a meeting, and I show up, and they well, and they didn't know. It's your record. They they freak out. So literally, we get the best deal I've ever. I mean, probably the best deal I ever got for wow. a, one single. But basically, so they get it, and they're everyone at the labels. It's going to be the big hit. They put it on their end of year compilation before they've released it. All this stuff, and literally, they get all these remixes. I'm in Van Helden, Full Intention. All these people do remixes. This is five years ago, so it was pre the disco thing mm. of now and they never really release it they they screw up they're afraid they spend so much money they do a video they never really release it but it was on the comp compilation so then fast forward six months later and my option which was supposed to be another single firm comes up and they're going well we never released it and i go well you don't have to but then I, we looked at the contract and whatever it was the contract was screwed up, but they had released the compilation. And I was getting royalty statements. So I said, well, here's a statement. You, re yeah. you released it. So they give it, they give me the record back and they give, have to pay me for the other record. <laughs> so literally, but then end of story, Simon Dunmore is putting it out on, on Glitterbox. And it, look, if Dr. Packer did a remix and I think... It could be a hit by the time the show's out. So, so it's called you, No Price. Slam, amazing. Wow. Slam dunk. <laughs> so you're going to get a double whammy. And you lease yeah. it off, <laughs> Absolutely. But literally, it was, it, was, it was one of those things that the record started in, uh, I recorded originally in, 70, yeah. in 78. I always find it crazy how record labels will pump so much money and do the video and get the remix and just not do a project. I always find a kind of mentality of that. Well, they paid me 50 grand to get rid of me and all they had to do is give me 20 grand more and they would have kept both records. So it made it made no sense. Yeah, you know? crazy. Absolutely crazy. But wow. I think the records, I, I'll let you hear the record anyway. So. <laughs> oh, that's, that's <laughs> so, a, when's that coming out? The, uh, the It's coming out this summer. It's right. coming out on Glitterbox. It's, 
No, it's, he, it's I mean, crazy story. Yeah. Simon Dunmore is convinced it's a hit, so he didn't pay anything for it. So Does he get the remixes as well, or do they stay with... Uh... He, we got everything. We wow. got the video, the remixes. We'll last amazing. summer, he put the remixes out. He uh, he 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 did. It came out last summer, but the, the Dr. Packard's the, the one. Right, that's, that's, that's that is one. just a distillation of the crazy times yeah. that we are we are that we find <laughs> yeah, ourselves absolutely. in, and, and, a, and a great place to to uh, to to end. Uh, Arthur, you're a true blazer oh. of trails, and you're <laughs> you're such a passionate guy, and I, it's so great that after all these years, you know, the passion is clearly well, I'm still palpably loving still there. Music, yeah. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Thank you. And yes. thank you. Uh, thank you too, Dom. No, thanks for having <laughs> me. It's been amazing. It's been inspirational. Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.